If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. I'm Erin Sadler from Sadler Science. And I'm Nicole Van Tassel with iExplore Science. We're here to cut through the confusion to help science teachers like you make science relevant and engaging with student-driven instruction. We know that when students take ownership of their learning, teaching can be simple and fun. Thanks for being here and let's dive into the episode. Hey there, this is Nicole Van Tassel, and I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. This is another solo one, although Erin and I are going to be recording soon, so you'll hear her again. But um, thanks for, you know, dropping in today. So today I want to talk about something I think we don't do enough of in middle and high school classrooms, but um, elementary school classrooms seems to do this a lot. And I think we're missing out by not incorporating this approach. And that is the lovely small group instruction model. So I feel like a lot of middle and high school classrooms, you know, you go in and the rows are set up in desks, or I'm sorry, the desks, the desks are set up in rows. And there is this um, instructional design where the teacher leads the class. And honestly, I even see this in my my the curriculum that my school has purchased for me to use it is very much teacher led it drives me crazy that it is that because i I hate teaching in that way but it is designed for the teacher to be at the front of the room to guide students through obviously there are moments where students break out and work with a partner on something or work in a small group on something but for the most part i mean but it's very much like the teacher is at the front leading and the reason i hate this model for instruction is I mean, well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is student chatter. It is so hard to get 25 plus students, right? Some of, you know, our classes have 27, 30, whatever, um, students to all be quiet and pay and pay attention. Like not just be quiet, but also be paying attention at the same time. I mean, that's just like exhausting. And that was one of the most difficult things for me in my first year or first couple of years, like year or two of teaching was trying to use that approach because that's what I was taught. That's what I experienced and feeling like it just didn't fit because it was so stinking exhausting to just be standing up there and guiding and talking the entire time or, you know, doing the whole waiting for students to stop talking type thing, which is, is, you know, don't talk over your students. That's like a recipe for them literally never stopping like to listen to you, but it is exhausting doing that. Right. I hated it. Not my thing. Um, So I don't like it for just the sheer like exhaustion from a teacher perspective. I also don't like it because I mean, it's not really helping our students because you have the ones that are like 
ready to move ahead and are bored or have already moved ahead on their own. You know, they're not even listening to you. Um, You have the ones who are lagging behind and are trying to stay up with you and are just getting so confused and lost. And the further behind they get, the more they shut down. And then you obviously have the middle of the road group. And maybe that's, you know, who you're teaching to, but it's not, you know, you're not really meeting the needs of all your students. Um, So, you know, you you have that. Um, And then I just feel like, it's not giving, it's, it's really just putting you center in the center of the learning. And we know that that is not ideal. We want our students to be talking with each other, um, thinking on their own, figuring things out, stepping up into those leadership roles. And when you are guiding from the front of the classroom, even when you're guiding like an exploration, let's say, or even when you're guiding, I don't know, literally anything, it's putting yourself as the you know, at the center. It's not It's not student-centered. Even whether or not we're student-led, it's not even student-centered. So small group instruction is a little bit different. So small group, I should say small group learning, which you can pair with small group instruction. So here's the difference between those two I see. Small group instruction, you, the teacher, are still very much leading the task, but you're leading it with a small group. And small group learning is students are completing a task in a small group somewhat independently. So what I like to do is pair those two things together because you can then guide your students at whatever pace they need through the small group instruction. You can really get an understanding of what they're what they're struggling with, what they know, you know, prior knowledge, what they are ready for, like because you're having those individual interactions. But also you're pairing it with the student um the student-centered type of approach, small group learning, where your students are carrying out tasks independently, they are having the opportunity to step up into leaders of their small group, they're having an opportunity to collaborate and work with others, they're having an opportunity to even chit-chat and talk. You know, I've, I've reflected on how many times I've been working with a, just with a friend that we used to co-work together um, before I came back to the classroom this year, and we would go to a coffee shop and we would work, and we would be silent for, you know, an hour or like however long. Sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was less long, you know, <laughs> depends on the day. But sometimes then we would take a quick five-minute break to just chit-chat and talk. And it was it was very enlightening to see how that was important in meeting our needs in the moment and helping us like take a break from our work and then giving us that opportunity to like have that space for a minute and then dive back in. And sometimes our students need that too, right? So it allows them to do that in a way that's not disruptive to anybody else. Um, anyway, and to meet that need of theirs. So, okay, so what are some actual, like, if you're kind of like on board so far, let's talk about some practical activities that you can move to a small group learning style approach. Because a lot of the times that we think, a lot of the things we think need to be whole group do not need to be whole group. We just have been conditioned to think that because that was our educational experience and that is how most teachers teach or many teachers teach. And and yeah, like but but we don't have to do it that way. Okay. So, here's a couple ideas of activities you can move from whole group to a more small group learning approach taking notes. And this is the one where I feel like we're like, well, you have to do it as whole group lecture or note taking or whatever. But, but again, why? I mean, maybe like even five years ago we did, but today all of our students have their own devices or have access to devices. And even if they don't, um, or, you know, in your classroom, you have access, but even if you don't, you can 
also just like print stuff out, you know, that works too. But taking notes can be a great way to, taking notes, you know, as a whole group. I actually hate taking notes as a whole group. I've noticed because you have the kids who write really fast and you have the kids who write really slow. And you're like waiting for the ones who write really slow because you don't want to rush through and then have them get frustrated and have them quit. But the ones who wrote it really fast are like really bored right now. And another thing with taking notes, it's like when they're writing, you should not be talking and explaining stuff because that doesn't make sense. How are they going to be paying attention to what they're writing and listening to at the same time? And it just seems like a very silly situation to have a whole group lecture type of thing when we're trying to have our students like take notes and all of you who are going to argue like well what are they going to do when they get to college and so on and so forth I mean just because somebody else does it wrong doesn't mean we have to do and I should have said wrong that was pretty harsh just because somebody else does it one way like do we have to perpetuate that you know because they might be exposed to it in college like what if they're not what if colleges are changing how they're doing things what if after you get beyond the you know bio 101 it's all um small group um not lecture small group discussions and and reading and chatter and talk and projects like maybe that's what college is in some places i i had some wonderful college professors that taught like that and so anyway i guess that's another argument for a different day but i I firmly believe that just because somebody else does something in a way that I think is less educational value, has less educational value, does not mean we just need to do it to so that our students are ready for for that type of whatever. Anyway, I have more arguments on that, but we probably don't need to get into that. So taking notes, what could that look like in this situation, this setup? Um, so a couple ideas. You could totally just have your PowerPoint, your slideshow, your definitions, whatever you want available for all students to work on at their group. Um, Or you could, and this is the more fun version, I feel like, you could break up the notes taking task into chunks and placing each chunk at a different table and then have students rotate through. So it brings in that stations element that incorporates some movement. So we did that earlier this year um, when we were taking some water quality indicator notes. My students um, have been working with a uh, college's water monitoring program so they've been doing all of these chemistry tests and obviously we wanted to like learn what those water quality indicators what those tests are testing right so i had a slideshow um and i actually printed it out for this task because students didn't i don't know i just they seem to do better sometimes when it's not on a screen but it was also on our google classroom for anybody who missed it or if they needed to make up or anything or whatever but i printed out this slideshow and i chunked it out so that there was a different like i think there was a pair of water quality indicators at six different stations and i had students rotating through and um and yeah and i think there were some questions this was a few months ago at this point but there were some questions that went along with it so it was like a couple definitions or key ideas there was a graphic organizer and then there was a couple questions that they could do when they were finished um and i can't remember i don't know but whatever and then we rotated through and if anybody didn't finish anything or if they needed to go back to it they again it was all in google classroom so they could go ahead and do it that way but it made taking notes so much better than me trying to just like stand up at the front and clicking through a slideshow right Um, another approach that you could do, um, is, so I guess taking notes also, you don't have to rotate. I guess I should also say that you could totally just have like a slideshow or students are picking or or the printout or students are going through the slideshow just in a small group. And maybe you have the notes and you have a couple questions in there that students are asked to talk about with their group and then answer together. 
Um, you could totally do that with any sort of really vocabulary activity as well. I've also done, instead of giving students definitions, I had the, and having them copy them like from the front of the board, we had cards and they were, and they were matching the definitions to the cards. They were just like talking about it. Um, and then there was like an answer key. They could double check their answers. And then they wrote down the definitions. And then I think I had them do like a little organizer kind of thing for like three of the words that they're choosing. It was pretty simple, but it was a way to have them like learn the definitions of some of the words that we'd already been talking about. They've already been exploring. Um, they could practice it. They could get it into their notebook. And it was a way where I wasn't the one, you know, at the center, they were the ones doing it, right? So those are some different ways that you can take notes or like incorporate that notebooking into a small group style. Okay, so next idea is having your students engage with the anchor phenomena in small groups. So a lot of times when we are working with a phenomenon, we think that we need to present it. And I even use that word sometimes and I try to catch myself because I hate that word. I, I truly believe our students need to experience a phenomenon in some way, shape, or form. Um, they need to interact with it, to engage with it, rather than just be like shown it. Uh, if we really want to get that that buy-in and the interest and the curiosity and all of that, so I like to create more of like an experience, and I will link to a blog post that has some information about that. Uh, but one thing that I like to do is break my students into groups to investigate the anchor phenomenon and ask each group then to generate their list of like observations and questions, you know, their notice and wonder. So we did this recently with our moon jelly anchor experience, which relates to the canned curriculum that my district has. But I also just did it with my environmental education class with my plants and pollinators phenomenon that um, inter engages students with the phenomenon of the murder hornet um, invasion in early 2020 that's kind of like fallen off the radar, but is still a concern. So basically each table, so there's two ways to do this. Um, with the moon jellies, I had each table had a different set of resources and clues, and then my students rotated through. So they were completing an I notice and an I wonder graphic organizer and as they rotated through they added to each other's ideas and questions about that set of resources. So one table maybe had some information about where moon jellies can be located in on the in the globe, like where their populations can be found. Um, maybe another one had some data and graphs and some information about changes in moon jelly population over the last few years. Um, another one had like a video about a kind of like a um, I can't want to remember what it's called, but it's like when there's a ton of them, a swarm of jellyfish uh, in Israel this past summer. I think it was Israel. And it was just like a YouTube video news kind of newscast about it. So things like that. So they each completed in their group. They were there for a few minutes. They were checking out those materials, making their own observations, creating some questions. And then they moved to the next one and they got to read the other students' observations and questions and then add to those. So that's one approach. Now, when I did the plants and pollinators lesson, I broke my students into groups and each group had the same set of clues or like resources. And it was, it's designed to be like this timeline. So the first thing that students did at their tables was to sort through the clues and try to put them in order of like creating this timeline. And I kind of described it as, it's like you're the police and you're investigating a crime and you're creating your your mur murder board. And it, and it works because we were talking about murder hornets. And so it was like a big thing. And I'm like, yeah, you're gonna have like, you know, yarn that connects these different events and we can write down our connections on our yarn. And we didn't actually use yarn, we just 
made lines on poster paper. But I had them go through each clue, create a little card that kind of summarized the clue, summarized their observations. They put them in order on this poster paper. And then we did some connections and some observations about the events and all of that. Um, but each group was working with the same set. Now, if I had done that like as a presentation of the phenomenon, like, hey, here's a video about murder hornets, or um, here's you know the events that happened, it's way less interesting. It's way less interactive. It is, again, putting me at the center or like our, our video at the center, right? And really, we want our students to be at the, at the center interacting with our phenomenon. So they got, went through that. And then afterward, I did show them a, a couple extra just little videos of like some dude getting stung by a murder hornet. And um, kind of it was like a BuzzFeed five things to know about murder hornets. And they were really into all of those things. And they came up with really great questions through this whole experience because they were invested you know, actively at that point. So your anchor phenomenon is a great like a great place to incorporate this small group learning because we really want our students to be talking with each other. We want them to be sharing their observations and generating questions together and just kind of exploring, right? So we do that so much better in groups because um, we can really feed off of each other's ideas. And so Anchor phenomenon is a great place to split your group, your students into small groups and, and dig into that phenomenon. Um, another activity format or another like thing that can be great for breaking into small groups is any type of review of an activity um, like of, of, a, of something that they've already learned. So Basically, you know, you're, you have the same task that everybody's going to do, and maybe you're going to work through it together, um, reading an article and answering questions, or so like some type of workbook type of thing. Maybe it is um, a couple scenarios, and then they're answering questions about those scenarios, or they're doing something with the scenario. So you can, it's a task that you would have just guided students through together. So instead, you assign that, that same task to all of your students. You could absolutely totally scaffold this, like if you were doing maybe a data nuggets type of activity where there's three levels, uh, or if you're doing an article and you can choose the Lexile reading level, you could totally break your students into scaffolded groups and it would be super not obvious because everyone's doing the same task. It's just literally leveled for them. Uh, and you can allow your students to then work with their small groups or their partners to complete this, the tasks. You might wanna do things like setting a timer for students to complete um, a certain number of paragraphs or you know, get up to question three in the next five minutes. Um, and that can be great to create, to keep your students on track and keep them um, you know, moving forward. Uh, but you, they're, they're working through it with their small group. And obviously if they are maybe not to that point at that five minute, it's not gonna like crush them either because you're gonna have students that work at different paces and that's okay when they're doing it in a small group. Um, but they also know like, oh, I sh if I'm just messing around and that's why I'm not moving forward, then I then I need to like get going on that. Um, and, and then even when you've finished the task, you don't need to even correct it together because what you could do is set up correction stations with some red pencils and answer keys. Um, or you could even have like a folder with the answer key in the center of the table that students can only open after a certain time. And students can just check their work themselves Again, whenever they're ready, at their own pace, and while your students are working, you are wandering the room and chatting with each group to formatively assess their understanding or help students who are struggling more than others. 
Um, you know, I use this strategy with some back to school stations and it worked really, really well. I really emphasize that my students when they're at the correction stations or when they're using the folder, I really, really emphasize that you have, I want you to use the red pencils to correct your work. And the reason I want you to do that is because I want to see what your original answers are. I wanna see your old ideas and how they change. So I don't want you erasing your answers. I wanna see what you wrote originally. I also don't want you copying my answers word for word because I want you to read it, to understand it, and then put it in your own words. As long as, you know, they, I didn't care what they wrote at the first, at the beginning, right? Whether it was right or what it was, whether it was wrong or whatever. In the end, by, you know, correcting their ideas, that's, they're learning, right? They're making progress. That's what I want to see. And yeah, I don't know. It, it like works really well. Um, it gives students a, this actually works really well for explorations too, this correction approach, because it gives students this kind of safety net. Like even if I think my answer is wrong, I'm not turning it into the teacher with a wrong answer. So it also takes some pressure off you because you don't have to, like there's always some students who are so worried about being right or wrong that they're constantly coming to you. Is this right? Am I like, is this correct? And you don't have to be the one to like validate that. They can they can learn how to, you know, correct them themselves, like to correct their own work um, and use their resources to do that. So it's, it's a really great approach. Um, the last activity that I want to share is what I would, I'm going to call like difficult skills. So there are some skills that really our students need our guidance completing, like, or like our, there's some tasks that our students need our guidance moving through because we're teaching the skill for the first time or we're taking it to the next level or it's just a really difficult skill, right? So I'm thinking things like when I'm first teaching text annotations and you can get my strategy in a previous episode, but when I'm first teaching students to truly like actively read a text and engage in those annotations, do the annotating. Uh, I'm thinking when my students are analyzing data or, pro- or producing, you know, graphs or other, um, things like that. I'm also thinking writing a, like a CER written response. We just did this in my class this last week and I'm, I did it, um, actually with my gifted class, I'll admit, like I, or the class that I would call it, they're not like labeled anything, but like the class that has, um, a higher level, they have done very well with CERs up to this point in general. So we kind of did it as a whole group, um, chunked out kind of portion and it worked really that worked well for them however with my other two groups of students who are really struggling with understanding this like claim evidence reasoning format and are getting stuck in not you know just it's just not not going well um those classes I did this small group learning type of approach so and this is more small group instruction, I guess. Now we're like moving into that small group instruction where like you're actually leading the task, but you're leading it with a small group of students because leading a difficult task with the whole class, you are going to lose some students. You're going to lose most of your students, I would argue. Because again, you either have the ones who are super bored because they already know how to do it, or you have the ones who are so lost that you keep moving through and they give up. And then you have the middle of the road ones that are kind of getting it, but you also don't even know until they turn in their work at the end and and, and the the task is over, right? And then you're either reteaching it, which feels like a massive waste of time and makes everybody else bored who already got it, um, or you're just like ignoring it and moving on and your students have not mastered that skill at all or even improved in that skill. So anyway, my argument for small group instruction, again, sorry. Um, 
side note, my husband told me that I recently, um, he was recently told me that I answer every question with a five to seven word paragraph. And sometimes when I, the one words, one sentence, bleh, I'm getting all mixed up. I answer every question with a five to seven sentence paragraph. And sometimes when I go through sentences one through three, if that answered the question, but I feel like I need to get to five to seven, I repeat my sentences one through three. So I apologize if I've just done that. Um, anyway, what I found works a lot better is the small group instruction. So with that kind of approach, you have your task, you call your students, you know, four to six of them up with you, and you have to obviously have somewhere to, to do this at, whether it's like a carpet space in your room or at like a big lab table that you can push together or whatever, gather around a table, and you guide students through the task just as you maybe would have guided the whole class through that task, but you're doing it with a much smaller group of students. And this allows you to really see, um, to, to pace it at whatever pacing that group's needs, whether it's like blowing through it or it is taking a lot more time. It allows you to provide whatever support that group needs. So with the claim evidence reasoning, you know, with the classes or the groups that seem to pick it up really quick, it was a, I'm telling you, like these are some, this is what you're gonna put in your evidence section. Like just in general, this is what evidence is about. With my students who are struggling more, I guided it a little bit further. Like, okay, what did we observe in this little activity we did right now, um, we were we were making milk curdle actually. Um, but what did we observe? Oh, it had a really small odor and chunks formed. Okay, tell me that. Like in your evidence paragraph right now, tell me that. Whereas with like a group that was flying through and, and understood the concept, I might just say, I want you to tell me what you saw. You know, so you can just scaffold it to whatever level that group is in at the moment. It makes it way easier because you're not battling for their attention because it is a much smaller group, so you can keep them all on, you know, on task and, and focused a little bit better. And um, and it just oh, it's, it's such an easier way to teach a difficult skill and actually know that your students are walking away with you know having received that instruction and actually like been engaged in the instruction versus like head down. So one of the big questions I always get when I talk about that is like, but what is everybody else doing? And that is where you go to the other things I just mentioned, right? The student-centered activities, the note-taking, the um, probably not anchor phenomena because that's a little bit different. Um, and you are often, our students often need more support with that early on, right? But like the taking notes type of activities, the vocabulary reviews, the kind of independent tasks where they are doing some reading and answering some questions or they are um, just answering questions or, or they have a prompt um, and, and whatever, you know? They, those types of um, more student-centered tasks where you have the supports that students can go to to get help. Um, they can ask each other at their table. They can check the answer keys. They can access their resources. Um, they are very much design their activities that are designed for your students to work through independently they are not incredibly difficult tasks those are the things that your other students are doing while you are working with a small group instructional style to build a more difficult skill and typically you want to obviously match up timing that's another question i get like well what about timing so that is where you want to make sure that the times match up. So if you anticipate um, an activity, a small group instruction type of task is gonna take about 15 minutes. Then you wanna make sure that whatever task your students are engaging in independently is roughly about 15 minutes. 
Obviously though, it can't just be 15 minutes because you can only work with one small group at a time. So if I know that I have, you know, I'm gonna break the students into three to four groups to do this, then I need to have about 45 minutes of independent style activities, whether it's one task or two to three tasks that students are doing when they are not working with me in their 15 minute chunk, right? Um, I've also done where I've done total flip-flops, like I am working with 15 students or 10 to 12 students, I guess it'd be with at the same time, guiding them through the more difficult task. Maybe they're toward the front of the room with me. And then the other half of the students are working on that more manageable, and then we just flip-flop in the middle of the class. Or maybe we flip-flop two different classes, right? If it's like a 45-minute guided kind of activity and then a 45-minute independent like we flip-flop at the, the next class. So you do have to kind of monkey with the timing to make it work for you, but I feel like the value that you get from being able to work with your students in a smaller group on the difficult stuff and the way that the independent work really empowers your students to be, you know, those leaders and um, collaborators and just working and learning together in community, it, it's worth the navigating the timing issue um, and it's always helpful to have some sort of like backup task or activity um, whether it is maybe your school does it really emphasizes like silent reading okay bring your book so that if you finish your reading right or maybe your school has um, you know that you know that there's other work that they are going to need to do in, in for a different class honestly with the way my school set up this year um, my students typically have like some other homework or something like that they they can do if they happen to finish early and I'm okay with that if they have finished their science stuff and I'm like working with a small group and I basically just want them to leave me alone so I can work with the students that I'm working with at the time if you need to do some math homework go for it as long as you've you know completed your stuff um, I also have however activities like nature journals that sometimes if I need a little bit of a filler gap it's that's an ongoing activity that we have done and, and I'll link to the blog post about nature journals or I'm sorry the episode about nature journals um, in the show notes but that is another type of activity that I'll say you know if you do finish early I want you to grab one of the nature items from our box and do a nature journal entry and I have like little task cards that guide them through a nature journal entry from different like perspectives and there's some question prompts so they know how to do that we've done it we, we I taught that skill they know what to do and so they can always add that as a task uh, but having those kind of extras just in case you need them can be really helpful as like a safety net for yourself but otherwise you do get the hang of the timing and you can typically make it work um, well in your class and again I just think the benefits of like small group learning can really outweigh any like initial hassles in navigating timing or all of that. Of course, classroom management is an important um, component of that because your students are working independently and that's where your culture and your your relationships really come into play. That's not what this episode is about though and we have a lot of episodes about that. I will, I will be sure to um, link to those. Um, and I'm writing myself a note to do that. Um, but if you are, if that's something that you do want to deep dive into, I just want to throw out there, I'm going to be hosting a program in January, 2023. So coming up pretty soon, um, called co-creating your classroom culture, creating an environment where students can learn and lead. And I would love to, um, invite you to check that out. Details will be coming out in the next, you know, month or so. But I'm super excited to dig into that because, again, all of the, these 
amazing instructional styles that you can do or all of these, you know, student-driven learning and storylines and 3D and all of that, they really do kind of require that culture foundation. And when you don't have that in place, you run into a lot more hiccups with these strategies. So I'm excited to dig into how um, into supporting you in that way. But if you have got the culture nailed down, you can totally dive right into some small group learning and some small group instruction. And I would love to hear how it goes for you. I would also love to hear if you have any additional ideas of activity format, like you know the types of activities that you found work really well for this style of learning. So if you have any things you wanna share, please reach out to me um, on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I don't go on Facebook very much, so I would say Instagram or by email, of course. If you're on the email list, uh, just hit reply and let me know what what activities have worked really well for you for small group learning or small group stations um, or small group instruction, sorry. And if you have any tips or tricks that you know I haven't mentioned that you think that our listeners would benefit from. Thanks so much for joining me today, and I'll catch you later. <laughs> Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com 3dplanner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com 3dplanner.